I did a lot of training with teachers and one of the tools that I found most valuable and that they absolutely loved was Erskine's relational needs. And talking to teachers about love, you immediately get a shocked reaction in the room when I'm saying about, you know, loving the kids they work with. And then I say, well, what does love mean? Yeah. It's something bigger than you and your partner or you and your kids. Education is a loving process. If you're wanting people to self-actualize, if you're wanting them to develop and grow. This is Three People in Your Head, a podcast about getting the best out of yourself and others. Co-hosted by Matt Taylor and myself, John Fleming. In this special theme episode, we speak with Pete Shotton. Pete has a psychotherapy practice in the north of England and is a teaching and supervising transactional analyst, supporting trainees, practitioners, supervisors and trainers in TA psychotherapy, education and counselling fields, as well as other counselling and psychotherapy modalities. We discuss education in general, the TA community and explore the idea of what Pete describes as being a transactional anarchist. We hope you enjoy. Pete, welcome on the podcast. It's great Thank to you, have John. you. Pete, let's just get kicked off by you giving us uh, an introduction. Who you are, where you come from, what your background is. Um, I'm Pete Shotton. I am a CTA in psychotherapy and education. I always say CTA first because that's the bit that we all try and get accredited in. That's what we start when we start off in TA. That's what we're training towards. Yeah. I'm also a TSTA in psychotherapy and education fields, and that's because I kind of pursued an interest in being a trainer and supervisor. I trained as a teacher many years ago, and I've really enjoyed the fact that I call myself an educator now, because I realized very early on in my teaching career that school and teaching didn't always match my idea of education. And at that point, I realized that they actually hadn't all the way through school. <laughs> As a child, I'd never really got on with education. It was only at that point I started asking the question, how come I went all the way through school and everything that came out of that? And here I am teaching. So I've realized that there's a bit of me that um, relishes a challenge and is also a bit perverse because I keep on putting myself in situations that I question. And I <laughs> guess that sort of fits with me as a transactional analyst. I'm also married to a transactional analyst. My wife is a TSTA and a poet, and that's um, quite a cool thing, just watching her creativity. Got three kids. They're all adults now, but they're all doing amazing things in the world. And that's kind of really important to me. And, and TA has been important to us as a family. Mm. I mean, the kids don't know that explicitly, but I know how it's developed me as a dad. Yeah. So, nice so I guess that's a ramble to start with. <laughs> Great. Well, you said something really interesting there about how you keep the words you used was you keep putting yourself in situations where you question things. I, I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. I've realized during my time in TA, uh, studying TA and reading, and actually what that's led me to, which is to, to reading lots of other books on philosophy, politics, child development, different therapeutic approaches. I realized there's a part of me that's being fed which is questioning conformity and questioning norms. And I don't know where that goes back to, but it is a real question about, does it have to be this way? The phrase that I often use with supervisees is testing the material. For mm. so any material that's kind of got any worth, you need to be able to stretch it and pull it and play with it and see where it goes. Yeah. If it tears immediately, then it's not the right material. Mm. And I think that's become 
it's become a habit with me. It's it's the way I like to be, and I think it's it's where my curiosity and creativity comes out. Is to automatically ask the question, "Why do we do it that way?" Mm. So, when you mention the word conformity, immediately what jumps into my head is rebel, <laughs> which says well, something about my own process. But I was wondering what conformity stirs up for you in um, relation to TA. Conformity is is doing something without question. It's a passive route, and there is something very seductive about passivity. You know, I mean, I recognise my own passive aggression. But I think we are surrounded by invitations to take the easy routes, the mm. passive routes. And so I guess I see um, conformity as, a, as a, a wasted opportunity, you know, wasting a chance to engage. Mm. And um, that irritates me for some reason. I think it goes back to the sort of bigger questions. This is going to sound really nerdy for an educator. <laughs> but when I, I did dreadfully at school, or I didn't do very well in terms of exams. Mm. I went to a grammar school. I passed my 11 plus. My dad died when I was 13, which really had a huge impact. And in those days, wasn't really something that was paid much attention to in mm. school. So my kind of grades plummeted. And then I kind of pulled myself together when it got to GCEs as they were in those days. But I put in one of the worst performances ever for our grammar school. I got four GCE passes rather than the standard five and above. And I actually tried to leave school at that point and go to college and got told by the school who supported my mum, who would, had been to the school, that, no, no, you've got to stay here and you've got to put things right. You've got to get some more GCE levels <laughs> and you'll do your A-levels here. Wow. So I chose to do A-level sociology. And one of the first things I learned about was the curve, the kind of bell curve which was applied to exam grades each year. <laughs> and so, of course, immediately I said to my teacher, so hang on. So each year we are being judged against this curve. So many of us have to pass with good passes. So many have to be in the middle and so many have to fail. Yeah. And I said, so, so actually it's an accident of birth, how well you do in your exams. And the teacher didn't get it. I said, you know, if I was a year younger and maybe with a different group of kids, mm. I might have done better in my exams. <laughs> Or might have been and it, it stuck with me that something didn't make sense. And I think at that point, I kind of realized these were important questions. Mm. I mean, the other side of conforming is that I don't mind conforming if I've asked the question and I've got a good answer. You know, I will not tear stuff down just for the sake of it. Yes. Anybody who's supervised me by me towards their CTA will tell you that all the boxes are ticked that everything's done, that they are prepared. This isn't an advert I've got in supervising. <laughs> um, you know, Terms and conditions apply. They're prepared <laughs> when they go for exam because in that sense, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do and we will conform. I might be asking questions of my fellow examiners and of other trainers about why do we do things this way, but as long as we're doing them, I will support somebody going through the system. So there's a bit of a paradox there. And I think that kind of ties in with the idea of rebellion. Because well, uh, yeah, because what I'm thinking when you're saying that is that non-conformity doesn't equal rebellion. No. But sometimes it's construed that way. It's mm. like if you're not willing to conform, it means that you're automatically rebelling, and that's not necessarily true. And, and I see rebellion the same as conformity. I will rebel if I can see a good reason for it. And if, if I'm doing it in order to address 
an unjust conformity. Keith Tudor's, mm. he talked about adult ego state as an integrating model. What he said was, we can rebel from an in-the-moment place, which is based on being in the moment and using reason in that moment. Not because we're accessing some kind of childish urge to say no, mm. but because we can see that there is an injustice that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So rebellion yeah. can be a really appropriate function, but not just for its own sake. Just to put it in more context for people, I suppose you could say that even asserting a boundary might be an act of rebelling, but an appropriate one if yeah. that boundary is really important to be upheld by you as an individual. Absolutely. As long as we're having the conversation about it, yeah. the problem I have often with a sort of conformity agenda is that it shuts down the conversation. Mm. And to me, the conversation is, well, we're transactional anarchists. Uh, there's, a, there's a slip. Transactional <laughs> analysts. <laughs> we were having a conversation before we started recording. Yeah. That's why I slipped out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's out of the bag now, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> why don't you tell us all about transactional anarchism? <laughs> well, I am I'm an inveterate um, punster. I love playing with words. Mm. And a few years ago, I was reading the definition of anarchy on the back of Chomsky's book on anarchy. And I really liked the definition because it was about questioning authority and systems. It wasn't about destroying authority and systems. It was about questioning. Yeah. And it seemed to me kind of quite a constructive approach to what we call anarchy. And I just thought, anarchist, analyst, the transactional <laughs> anarchist. Because I do believe that transactional analysis is about questioning everything. And it gives us a permission to question everything. Yeah. It's there in, in the name. Transactions are communication analysis. What's going on in our communication? And yeah. I, I love yeah. the way we then can delve into the meaning of every word, every phrase that we use. Mm. It can be frustrating at times because it confronts our passivity. But at other times, it, it kind of throws up such insights and meaning. So to look at the word anarchy, and see how, how that gets used and how we kind of build a picture around what an anarchist is. Whereas to me, you know, when you actually break that down, you think, well, actually, this is just somebody who's asking questions and they're perfectly legitimate questions. And they might be awkward questions. Yeah. But if you've got sound material, you're up for being asked awkward questions. And actually, if you're being asked awkward questions, you're part of an education process. Because those awkward mm. questions might lead to enlightening answers and to doing things differently. And that, for me, is the essence of transactional analysis. That's where I really felt like I found something when I came into transactional analysis, when I discovered it. It wasn't like um, I was necessarily learning something new. It was like I was finding a body of theory mm. that made sense to the 16-year-old who said, hang on, this curve. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, transactional analysis gave me a language and a framework for understanding what was going on there. Mm. There's something as well that comes up for me around justice when you talk about the curves. Mm. I'm wondering how you correlate that into it or if it comes into it for you, you know, um, maybe around social issues or political issues. Yeah, I think I hate unfairness. Actually, I don't like using the word hate. But yeah, unfairness is, I think that's a real kind of 
a legitimate child feeling. When a child says, that's not fair, it's one of the truest things you can hear. And quite often they'll get slapped down for pointing that out, the little anarchists. Um, <laughs> Life's not fair. Yeah. It's where you get back. Yeah. And that's a good lesson to learn. But then the next bit is, so how do you address that not fairness? Mm. I have a lot of faith in values. The thing that I love about human beings is that we do create value systems. And at the same time, we sneak around them. And I say we because it's not like there are good people and bad people. There are just people who do good and bad things. It's another part of testing the material is to try and destroy the material. Mm. I place a lot of value on values. And I think that's another part of the questioning that I do. And in everything I do, I'm kind of, I realize I set marks for for myself in terms of dignity, integrity, which I don't always match up to. I quite often don't match up to. But I, those are things that I value. I like it when people are true to themselves. I like it when we can have a conversation without losing our temper. You know, when we can actually meet and disagree. Mm. It's really interesting. I watched BBC Question Time last night because of the lockdown and stuff. It was a situation where people are on screens like this um, in Zoom calls. And I realized how much it changed the dynamic of the program. (laughs) Yeah. And the answers were considered that speakers rarely spoke across each other. The necessary gaps that were created in this form of communication took a lot of the it's a kind of a, a mob mentality, a kind of, it took a lot of the, the heat out of it. Yeah. But it didn't take out any of the integrity of the arguments away. Different opinions were expressed, and there was a sense that there were differences there, but you could hear what was being said, and you could actually hear the intention behind what was being said. So there were people I disagreed with, but I could hear their thinking being expressed. It wasn't as if I was being bombarded by sound bites and cat calls and um and i can cope with that kind of discourse Mm. so do you think there was something going on with an awareness that their adult ego states were more engaged in that online situation rather than being face to face and being triggered yeah yeah i do i think we are going to spend a lot of time learning going forward about the value of online communication yeah and it's something that I am definitely up for exploring. Mm. Um, I observed online exams at Metanoia, online oral exams, the first ones that were done. I approached it with, well, with an open mind, and I was going to be interested to see the difference. And there was a considerable difference and huge similarities in terms of the conversation once it was flowing. It was fantastic. And what was happening for me in that moment was I was thinking, this creates access. This creates a different situation for accreditation. This is wonderful yeah. and different. And we have to find a way to accommodate the difference and learn from this and go forward and introduce something that is, um, to me, a social and economic necessity for people who can't afford mm. to attend TA conferences and exams that take place around the world. It's bringing mm. the world to them. I really do value the learning of this in the past year. And I, I, and I think, yeah, what you said, Matt, about adults, maybe the fact that we have to give some thought to the technology, 
and maybe the fact that we we are confronted by the faces. We're looking directly at somebody, and and maybe that sort of I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it before, but I think it does invite a here and now interaction. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating. It is, isn't it? I wanted to ask you a question about the conformity. Actually, mm. what do you think is lost when there is conformity? The first thing I would say is creativity. Mm. Straightforward example: the national curriculum. Mm. I mean, I was educated in the nineteen sixties and seventies. I, in that way that the, the adverts used to say, you always remember a good teacher. I remember the creative teachers I had. I remember the teachers who inspired me. Mm. And there was something about the relationship that allowed them to shine through. Yeah. I was interested in their subject because they were interested in their subject. They were teaching me something they were passionate about. Mm. Now, it's not necessarily that I remember all the facts they taught me, but I remember the fire that they lit in me to go and find stuff out. Yeah. To me, that's the purpose of education. It is not to fill a bucket with facts. It's actually to give every learner their own bucket to go off and find out what they want to fill it with. But it's the knowledge that they can go, they know they've got the power to fill it themselves. And I think the terms that get bandied about in, in schooling, in the schooling system, I really want to separate out schooling and education. Yeah. Um, because I think schooling is a kind of a function. And I think, you know, education is a philosophy, a passion, a way of living. So, yeah, I think conformity, the moment we try to harness something, we're going to lose something. Mm. So when we, I don't mind creating standards, but I don't like standardization. And I think you can have standards without standardization. Mm. The national curriculum introduced a standardized curriculum. And I mean, I can remember when we were first looking at the documents, I can remember seeing fellow teachers switch off as they were reading what they had to teach and the way they had to teach it. Yeah. Because at that point, they were losing so much of themselves. They were becoming transmitters of a message. And I think this happens all the time in education. And I, and I have a particular well, take on this in, in the TA world. I don't like that we call our accreditation process an exam process. Mm. Really? And I don't like that it becomes a gateway that you have to pass through. Mm. For me, as a therapist and as an educator, I'm on a lifelong learning process. When I passed my CTA, well, when I passed both my CTAs, I did more supervision and had more supervisors and did more courses in the year after I'd got through that gateway than I did before. Because before I was learning to a particular target. Yeah. After Mm. I was free Mm. to then really do the learning. And I've I've said this a lot to supervisors. It's almost like you have to pass through this turnstile and then you can really start developing and learning your craft. Mm. You said something earlier, Pete, that keeps coming back into my mind. You said that conformity the end result can be that it shuts down conversation. Yeah. I'm just thinking now, based off what you just said, it, conversation might not be the only thing that it's shutting down. Um, mm, you know, you also said creativity, yeah. opportunities for other learning that's outside the structured yeah. or standardized curriculum. And yeah, that's really left the, 
a feeling of injustice for me anyway, coming back to that justice thing is that when everything's being controlled so much, nothing spontaneous can happen. No. Mm. Actually, when I was answering my own question, what's lost with conformity, what came to mind was freedom. And then you said, as soon as you'd passed your CTA, you were free and you explored and had all the supervision you wanted. Yeah. And, you know, and in that, I think, I think part of this is because I was thinking freedom can sound alarming when you're saying people are free to become psychotherapists, free to become educators, because it's that bit about freedom and responsibility. But I think, or and I think, we lose sight of the human being's capability to be responsible and desire to be responsible. And I think we need to trust people to be free and responsible. The problem with the freedom of speech argument is it's, it's often spouted irresponsibly. <laughs> you right. know, people will say, I'm free to say what I like. Not without some responsibility to your fellow human beings to relationship to yourself. And I think, you know, we can teach freedom and we can teach responsibility. Yeah. And I, I think one of my problems with, certainly with the accreditation system in TA is that, that there is, there's something double-edged about that freedom. I would rather, what I always say to everybody who comes to me who is going for CTA, I say, you will get through this and you can enjoy the process and you might not get through it first time. And at that point, they're thinking, I'm going to fail an exam. And it's kind of changing the mindset to know you're going to find a way through this process. You might find people who disagree with your way of doing things. There might be moments where you haven't learned everything that you need to learn in order to do this. Mm. But if you, say, submit a CTA case study and it comes back with recommendations, there's an extra bit of learning for you. It's not a failure. No. But it's presented because, I think, of of the script that we carry based on formal schooling systems in childhood. It's easy for us to passively fall back into, it's an exam system. And exams are about passing and failing. Yeah. And to me, it's not. It's a learning process. And these are about markers along that learning process. I'm I'm not against people writing 24,000 words. I am against them being told that they fail. I think, you know, they might be told they have to resubmit with some advice mm. um, as to aspects that they maybe need to learn more. But if it's presented as, yeah, you will get through this, but you're going to need to do a bit more on this. And I would do the same with the oral accreditation process. You're going to talk to a group of your peers about the way you work. It might be that in that process, something comes out that shows that there may be some gaps in your learning that they think it would benefit you to learn more about. And, you know, it may be that in a year's time, your supervisor submits a report saying you've addressed those aspects of your learning. Because, <laughs> because a key part of the TA process and the psychotherapy process for me is that the real learning takes place in supervision once you've become accredited. Mm. Supervision is such a wonderful, engaged, relational learning process. I tried to introduce it in the schools that I worked in, in in a sort of, in the sense that supervision takes place in the psychotherapy world. Mm. I offered it to some of my colleagues in school. And I've had teachers who have come to me for the kind of equivalent of clinical supervision, not a management supervision, but to talk about relationships in the classroom and relationships in the staff room. Mm. and to develop their learning in that way. What a brilliant idea. And, and that's where I see the lifelong learning. 
And so much of this is transferable that we're talking about in regards to TA and the TA world and lessons and exams and learning. You see that kids, we're going back to schooling and education, Mm -hmm. but kids learn that getting it wrong is a bad thing. And there's that Carol Dweck quote where she says the word yet is the really important thing. You haven't got it right yet. Yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose it's, it's the interface between psychotherapy and education. Maybe because I had worked in education, and maybe because when I started working as a therapist, I was teaching children with dyslexia. So uh, unwittingly, I was learning about neurodiversity at that stage because I was working with young people who didn't fit. Yeah. I mean, I had a very technical remit, which was to get their reading age to nine and a half years and to improve their writing skills. So we had this sort of technical language stuff, but none of that addressed their feelings about themselves. And I was seeing them one-to-one, two or three times a week. And what I discovered was that because I was in therapy myself and I was learning about psychotherapy, I discovered how important it was for them to talk about themselves and to actually have adult-to-adult conversations to be treated as in the TA sense, adults in that situation. And I realized we were focusing less and less on the reading age and more and more on their way of seeing the world, their way of being in the world and their development. And at that point, I kind of struggled to see, no, no, that's, that's a discount. I could see the value of both the psychotherapist and the educator in me. And yeah. I... I saw them both as equally important. And I also saw a need for both in the environments I was working in. I can see in in psychotherapy that personal journey is an education. It it can't not be. And I can see in every classroom where every good teacher is working, they're trying to maintain 30 relationships. Mm. I did a lot of training with teachers and one of the tools that I found most valuable and that they absolutely loved was Erskine's relational needs. You know, and talking to teachers about love, you immediately get a, a reaction, a kind of a <clears throat> shocked reaction in the room when I'm saying about, you know, loving the kids they work with. And then I say, well, what does love mean? Yeah. It's something bigger than you and your partner or you and your kids. Education is a loving process. If you're wanting people to self-actualize, if you're wanting them to develop and grow, that's a very loving thing to do. Yeah. And the classroom, the best classrooms are a place where love is very present. And I found the relational needs a great way of being able to um, contextualize that message for teachers. It was a wonderful tool to use. I don't do that work anymore, but I absolutely loved it. And it was always effective when I used that. So you're not in the schooling system anymore? No. (laughs) When I got to 60, and there was something symbolic about having trained as a teacher for all those years and and worked in schools and getting to the position where I had quite a good psychotherapy practice and a supervision practice growing. And also, I don't like the term retirement. I knew I I could take my teacher's pension and actually start expanding my world. And so it was quite nice to leave the sort of salaried world. I mean, I'd always found it a compromise working for people. The part of me that questions conformity would always struggle with those moments when an organization would be parental. You're doing it this way because we say we're doing it this way. 
And I didn't want to feel rebellious. I didn't want to be having to ask the questions anymore. So it was wonderful to free myself of that. And to expand my world a bit, to start exploring my own creativity as well as my work as a therapist and supervisor. So the last few years, I've kind of freed myself up a bit. Mm. With you focusing so much as an educator in the TA community then, Matt and I have been asking a lot of the guests up to this point, why do they think that TA is not so well known? Some people will contest that statement, but you know, for, for the most part, our view anyway is that it isn't that well known, particularly like if I take Ireland as an example, very few people know what transaction analysis is and there's a handful of people using TA therapeutically. But we're kind of moving that question on now because there seems to be kind of a general consensus about why, about maybe there's some of burned script left over. Maybe we have a script in the TA community about not being successful or whatever. What does the TA community need to do to create a shift? I'm interested about that and how you might link that into conformity. And I think be prepared to take a risk. Yeah, take a risk and see ourselves as part of um, a social project. I think TA values, I was going to say I don't want to be political about this, but I think we're political about everything. <laughs> I think TA values for me are humanistic values. They're about supporting people in groups. And I think coming from a position of supporting relationships, supporting groups, supporting communities, is bound to take you to the left-wing end of the political spectrum because the right-wing end tends to be about our development as individuals and our individual resources and factors. There's no such thing as society. I don't like polarization in politics, but I, I would say, you know, the social responsibility is really important to me. I mean, I worked in schools for many years. I worked with mm. foster children for many years. I've always put myself in that place. And I live in Manchester. I live in the north of England, which I would say is, apart from maybe crossing Yorkshire, <laughs> I'm not going to cut that one out. I've lived in Yorkshire for the past three years. People are very um, self-sufficient there. But no, I'd say there's, there's a sense of community and of neighborliness mm. at best. It's not always there. Mm. But I think those values are TA values, and yet we don't find a way of actually living those values in our communities. Where it does happen, my wife, Marie Norton, wrote um, a, an article with Keith Tudor back in the noughties, um, Being White. And Marie was inspired by the schools we were working in in Manchester and the setting she was working in and looking at her white identity, working in a predominantly non-white setting and looking at the whole aspect of, of racism and of identity politics and diversity from the point of view of being part of the overall privileged white group. Mm-hmm. A really important piece of work in TA. It doesn't get taught enough. It doesn't get developed enough. But what she did was she then started teaching 101s to school staff. And she also taught 101s at the Extramural Studies, which was an adult education center at Manchester University, where people just were going for purely personal development. Yeah. But they were doing a TA 101. I've done a couple of TA 101s in schools. We've got a fantastic tool there which is really accessible, fun, Mm. a great education tool, a great development tool. It generally gets taught as a recruitment tool for TA training. Mm. 
I would love us to set up some kind of program within UCARTA. And I'm, a few years ago, I proposed that UCARTA become a training organization because it's part of the constitution of UCARTA, I think. Um, there is a, a clause about educating the community. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that I would have it the People's First 101 should be done in a community context, whether it be with people in, you know, carers or whatever, but that we, we do it at cost price and we do 101s. Mm-hmm. That would be a simple tool that would put TA out there in a practical way. Yeah. Whenever it is put out there in a practical way, it takes hold. Mm-hmm. I think there's something about the way we've developed in the UK with training institutes, which are businesses, and I'm not blaming people for having businesses, and, and there are some fantastic institutes and some fantastic things taught, but they take away the autonomy of learning. You know, we become more and more prescriptive. You have to complete a course at a particular institute. The other thing I would do about our accreditation processes is say, accumulate your hours. doesn't matter where you accumulate them, but you've got to account for them when you turn up for that accreditation process. Yeah. That was how it used to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think there's something really valuable about that. And I think part of it is what I said earlier about passivity. A path becomes the easiest path to walk along. I mean, it, if there's a path there, you follow it. You know, we could develop other paths. John and I were talking earlier this morning and we were saying how Rosemary Napper described TA as being this wonderful set of maps. When so many people are trying to find their way, organizations, groups included, yeah. it's such a useful resource. Yeah, it is. And it's an empowering resource. Yeah. And I think sometimes, well, there can be a reaction against people being empowered. <laughs> we, we see that all the time. I'm chuckling, Pete, because I read Ian Stewart's book on Eric Byrne last summer. And I learned all this stuff about Eric Byrne that I really didn't know. And he was a complete nonconformist. Mm. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was, you know, I'm going to do it my way. And he spearheaded. And then, I mean, I can't say for definite, I'm only taking what I picked up from reading this book, but then he got accused of being a, a communist or, or yeah. a socialist or whatever it was. And it was like, all of a sudden, TA cannot be political. Mm. He cannot have an opinion on society. And I feel like that just chopped any potential for us to be able to be spectators or contributors. The chapter that I wrote in the Education Transaction Analysis book about politics, I used the OK Corral model. I did a kind of matrix based on that, where I was saying the positions of I'm OK, you're not OK, and I'm not OK, you're OK, are interchangeable. Mm. But most of what happens every day is happening on a sort of, on a plane between those two positions. We're constantly competing. We're judging ourselves against other people. Mm. We're putting ourselves one up, one down. We're invited to do that. Our society is set up in such a way. And I overlaid that with the idea of hegemony and Gramsci and this idea of buying into a ruling class. And, you know, if you look at what's happening in politics at the moment with these populist authoritarian leaders, they have an audience. They have a catchment who can passively fall into accepting those messages. When, when you really buy into transaction analysis, the answer is always going to be it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're not necessarily great at passing opinions, because the I'm okay, you're okay 
area of that matrix is one where there's conversation happening all the time and various points of view being expressed. And it's where you're looking at both sides of an argument. So it's never as straightforward as, I'll tell you what you need to do. It comes back to that bit of, you're not a great opinionator if all you're doing is saying, but I'm really interested in the questions and I'm interested in the questions that that throws up. So I don't really have a problem from that point of view, but I do have a problem that TA isn't out there enough empowering people to ask questions mm. and to, to find their own internal measure to use. Mm. That saddens me because I think it is a model that addresses passivity. Yeah. I would use 101s as a starting point. But, you know, the other bit would be to kind of whether we'd ever dare take the risk in the way that, say, person-centered has and, you know, allow our theory to be out there and to be taught in courses in adult education colleges by people who aren't PTSDAs or TSDAs, but by teachers who've kind of picked up a, a TA manual and are teaching it. Do we trust? Are we prepared to sacrifice ourselves to that? You know, because what that would mean is a lot of people who've kind of come into this TA world wanting to develop in a particular way and developing a, a business model in a particular way would have to be prepared to sacrifice that model. I don't think it would be a problem because in the person centered world, you still have person centered training institutes that are very successful. But, you know, I think that those are the kind of choices we have to make to allow TA to be out there. As a trainee, I can definitely get a sense of that sometimes. Mm, yeah. Even setting up this podcast for me was felt like, you know, a bold move because it's like, yeah. should we be doing this if we're not a TSTA? Is it allowed? Yeah. <laughs> and I was very naive first year. I didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, there's no TA podcast. Let's go for it. I really want to pick up on your discount there, Matt, because... I think naivety is encouraged. I think there is a sense, especially in psychotherapy training, it's there in our models that we have the concept of parent, adult, child, that whether we mean to or not, we create some kind of parent-child dyad in training. And I, and I don't know if that's there in every educational institution. Maybe it is to some degree, but I don't know that it is. Because I, every trainee who comes into a TA training organization is bringing something new. They're bringing a lifetime of experience and knowledge, but it can sometimes feel as if that's been left at the door. So you're saying um, that that dyad is institutionalized? Yeah. So your naivety, as you put it, was, no, you came with a set of expectations that you can do this based on your life experience, <laughs> yeah. based on your considerable life experience and careers that you'd already had. Mm. You expected that you would be able to use your creativity and your knowledge to operate in a particular way. Mm. Maybe your naivety might have been to find a world that couldn't immediately catch up to your thinking on that, but then might have responded in a parental way. Mm. And, you know, I think that's, there's the potential for that always in TA. And I don't know if it's a kind of Achilles heel that we have based on our models. One of the things that used to happen at TA conferences was that for the best possible reasons, there would be the big social on the Saturday evening, the grand occasion, and a map would go up of the tables and people would book their places on tables for the banquet. And what would happen is you would turn up to book your place on the table and then you'd see the names of institutes written across the tables, immediately creating a sort of an exclusion zone and actually sometimes creating almost like... Um, a mother or father hen and their chicks 
because you would have the trainers from that institute and the trainees from that institute there at the banquet. Now, that was the way people did it. The non-conformist part of me really wanted to create a rule to say that you can't do that. I'm going <laughs> to force you to go out there and meet each other. But, you know, it turned a, a social occasion on its head because it stopped socializing in some ways. Into mm. a tribal created, one. Yeah. Oh, it was so tribal. And, you know, I, I just don't think it's helped at all. Mm. And I think it's part of the kind of potential infantilization of the system that we have, which is why I would love to have an autonomous learning path where maybe the compromise would be that you have a supervisor from the start, you know, a TA mentor who is a PTSD or a TSD who will vouch for you mm. and who might say, right, well, you know, that's great that you've gone off and done some training with Ian on redecision. I suggest that you maybe kind of go and find Heather Fowley and do some stuff with her on relational models and actually do some training there. You know, you could actually put together your own bespoke training program. And to me, that would be a really exciting autonomous learning package. And there um, is a sense that sometimes the colleges, obviously, because they're businesses, they're competing yeah. for students and attendees. And But I suppose, yeah, I always hear that competition thing. And I think, yeah, I understand it. And I live in Manchester and there's a part of Manchester called Rush Home. And Rush Home has got the Curry I Mile. I live there. Yeah. Well, you will know that the Curry Mile <laughs> just gets bigger and bigger. Now, everybody there is running a restaurant that sells Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Indian food. Yeah. There's every curry in the world is available there in every place next door to each other. It keeps on getting bigger. You know, all of those businesses are in competition, but they also they need the group identity that they've created. Yeah. You know, you don't go to the same one every Saturday night. Yeah. And they know that. Yeah. And they're comfortable with that. I think we have to trust people who want to train in TA to turn up and train. Mm. And if you've got a training that is yours and that you've got faith in, you will get the people who will come through the door who will want to do that. They will make the choice to stay with you, or they might make the choice to go and do a bit of learning with somebody else. Whichever they do, it's okay. Yeah. When we started our physio clinic 17 years ago, this notion of fear of competition was being banded about. You know, you don't want a physio setting up across the road from you. And we went to a seminar where a chap said, well, actually, you could really do with it because it will raise the brand awareness of what physio is about in that larger community. And that'll be better for you. And I think there is something in that. And what you're saying is that TA to be better known needs to be understood by the masses. If only people knew how accessible it is and how helpful it could be. I don't really want to go mentioning another therapeutic modality, so I'll go to coaching instead. But ICF have done a really good job of that because the saturation of coaches in the world is, is huge. They're not all terrified of, of working next to each other. You know. The other crazy thing I think that happens is that once TA psychotherapists have got their accreditation is that they become a lot friendlier and more open to other modalities. <laughs> and more excited to find out about other modalities and are immediately dipping into them, sometimes mm. doing training in them. So, you know, I think it's really interesting how we've got a model that encourages openness, encourages inquiry, and encourages relationship, and yet somehow we turn in on ourselves at times mm. and, and we kind of shut the world out. You being a transactional anarchist, what is it that holds you with TA then with all these other disciplines available or other approaches? Part of it is that I keep on finding something new in the models. Yeah. That um, 
I think I, I answered in one of the paper questions to you about the three circles. I've never really liked three stacked circles, but I love all our triangles. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe that's just an, an aesthetic thing. But I do love the way that if you pick up the TAJ, you just see more and more drilling down into this theory, this apparent sort of gathering of a few ideas, which can be presented in quite a simple way, yeah, but have a real complexity. And I suppose because that's the complexity I started exploring, that's the one I want to keep on exploring. Mm. But that hasn't stopped me looking at existential and person-centered narrative and doing more reading in those areas and looking for connections. Mm. And I really like doing that. And I like having my transaction analysis identity. I mean, another bugbear of mine is the therapy requirement on TA psychotherapy training, which was a compromise around conformity, around finding a way to guarantee to the UKCP that TA trainees had the appropriate level of psychotherapy experience as clients. So we've got the 160 hours, four years. I am quite bullish about when TA trainees, well, in fact, I don't see TA trainees as psychotherapy clients anymore. One of the reasons being, we've already got a dual relationship. They're likely to see my name somewhere. They're likely to potentially bump into me at conferences. I don't want that. I want people who are training as psychotherapists to have experience of psychotherapy. Mm. I don't think it needs to be TA psychotherapy. Because the one substantial piece of research we've got says that the key component in successful psychotherapy is the relationship, not the modality. So as long as they have got a relationship with psychotherapy, then they know what it's like to be in that room, to be the client. And if they are doing it for the reason that they've got something to work on Mm. and not for the reason that they've been told they have to turn up, then they're really going to experience psychotherapy. I have made the mistake of trying to work with somebody whose motivation was to get their 160 hours. And at that point, I just thought, never again, and I'm not going to do this. I actually feel quite bullish about saying, you know, you need to experience therapy, go and find a therapist. And in some ways, it would be good if it wasn't a TA therapist, because then you're not going to have that dual relationship. And actually, it might be a good challenge for you not to have a shared language with your therapist theoretical language with your therapist. You know, that disorientation might be really effective in terms of you embracing the therapeutic process. Mm. I definitely think that's true. But, you know, I mean, I I don't know if I'm right, but that's one of the kind of non-conforming questions I would ask where we've kind of started conforming to something that, to me, raises questions and raises ethical questions because at every TA conference and TA gathering, you've got due relationships. Mm. You've got people avoiding each other or people wondering whether they can say hello to each other. People wondering whether they can go up to the bar and order a pint because just further down the bar is the person that they're going to be talking to next Tuesday in a therapeutic setting. And that, that to me, is something we need to talk about. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the other aspect of that as well is I don't think your first experience of therapy should be after your first training weekend to become a psychotherapist. Because I think at that point, something has been lost, which is a clarity about the process of therapy and engagement with the process. You know, I was in therapy three years before I started training, and I know a lot of people come to it through that route. And 
I realize I sound a bit ruly about this. You know, here's, here's the other side of the kind of the conformity. But without making it a rule, I do think it's an important conversation. You know, why are we really doing this? Mm. What's the value of therapy as a compliance tool? You know, it's, you've got to want to be in that room and you've got to want to explore something in yourself. There's something as well, isn't there, about autonomy in all of this, or at least yeah. that's what it's arced in me is like, why shouldn't I be allowed to decide when I need and don't need therapy and what type of therapy I need? And I, I think that's important. But I had never thought about the shared language anymore, which has really stirred something up in me. Yalom would say it's all grist to the mill, and I would agree with him. Yeah. And as I say, I, I think it's, it's back to horses for courses and conversations, but there should be more than one way. And um, it frustrates me because things become orthodoxies. And once you've got an orthodoxy, there's a, an unspoken need to conform. And we I, stop exploring the other ways. I guess the other thing that's important to mention as well, though, is that we're talking specifically about training in the UK around this discussion. It may well be different in other parts of the world yeah. um, in some places. And that's another interesting aspect as well, I suppose, of training mm. is that, you know, people maybe assume they have to train in the country they live in and they have yes. to join the association in that country. But, you know, who makes those rules and can they be broken? <laughs> Don't even get me started on the Atlanta hmm. UKCP interface. I mean, <laughs> I feel stimulated by this conversation. Mm. I think it's been fantastic. Really enjoyed your questioning of systems and conformity. Yeah, thank you. Really mm. enjoyable. Yeah, no, it's been really good. Really grateful for your time. Mm. Well, thank you. I, I've really enjoyed that. As always, if you found anything in today's episode interesting, please feel free to reach out. If you would like some more information on TA or you'd like to see some TA resources, then head over to our website, transactionalanalysispodcast.com. You can also connect with us on all major platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also email us at threepeopleinyourhead at gmail.com using the number three rather than the word. And if you haven't already, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and we would be really grateful if you could leave us a review. Thanks for listening.